Hello everyone and welcome to Longevity Now, the place for all your news and views of life extension from around the world. When considering life extension and rejuvenation, a person comes to appreciate the all-encompassing scientific and philosophical endeavor that it is. Not only is conquering disease, ending aging, and rejuvenating the human body a difficult and complex task, the philosophical ramifications of doing so are profound. And that is just for the biological aspects of the task. If technological progress and human evolution continue on their current trajectory, we have many more questions to answer. Questions of consciousness and identity. Questions that chronicists have been dealing with for decades and are bubbling to the forefront once again due to the efforts of tonight's guest, Kenneth Hayworth. Dr. Hayworth, along with John Smart, have started the Brain Preservation Foundation and offered the Brain Preservation Prize. The idea is to help advance the science of brain preservation and highlight the best technology for doing so. If there is a better technology than cryonics, such as chemopreservation, and it involves scanning and uploading the brain structure to a different substrate, what effect does this have on the preservation of your personal consciousness? You can find some ideas in the following interview. And now I would like to welcome to the program Dr. Kenneth Hayworth. Welcome to Longevity Now. I'm very glad to be here. All right, uh, first off, could you give us a little background about yourself, uh, your educational background or work history a little bit? So actually I'm a uh, PhD neuroscientist. I got my PhD in neuroscience from the University of Southern California, studying the human visual system. Did a lot of MRI work on human subjects from a cognitive visual science perspective and also uh, some theory models of the visual system. While I was doing that PhD work, I was also working at Harvard University and kind of flying back and forth between Los Angeles and Boston, building a uh, tape collection mechanism for automatically collecting ultra-thin sections off of an ultramicrotome. And after that, I did a postdoc at the same lab at Harvard uh, to finish up that research. Once that research kind of came to somewhat of a conclusion, I recently, about six months ago, was hired on at Genelia Farm Research Campus, uh, Howard Hughes Medical Institute, to do brain imaging using the focus ion beam SEM technique. And so I'm developing uh, uh, new thick sectioning procedures for expanding the focused ion beam uh, SEM technique, which we can talk about in, in depth if you'd like, expanding that to much larger volumes. Oh, okay. And the SEM technique, is this like a finer resolution way of scanning? Or Yeah, I think it just give a brief overview of the field. So there is a new field in neuroscience called connectomics. Yes. It, it's a field that has its roots back in the 1940s when electron microscopes were invented and first used to look at, at neural circuits. Within the last six years, there has been really an explosion of automated techniques for doing electron microscopy in a much more automated, large volume way. And all of these techniques have really come about, at least in my opinion, they've really come about because of advances in scanning electron microscopy. So traditionally, people have looked at neural circuits at the nanometer scale. So a neural circuit, a brain circuit, 
the finest wires are down to about 40 nanometers in, in scale. So there's no way to see this with a light microscope. No. If you want to see all of these uh, connections between neurons, you really have to use an electron microscope. People have traditionally been using transmission electron microscopes, but that means that you have to slice the brain very, very thinly, maybe 50 nanometers thick, and look at it while it's in that thin state. About six years ago, there was a guy named uh, Winfried Dink in Germany that came up with a way of looking at neural circuits slice after slice after slice using a scanning electron microscope. And that was, uh, was really a breakthrough because then instead of having to cut these thin slices and look at them while they're in their thin state, you could, uh, you could look at just the surface of the block and cut one section off the surface of the block and then look at the surface again. Uh, I see, okay. Section, look at the surface again. And so uh, he, he invented the serial block face SEM technique, and that has been used to reconstruct retinal circuits and all sorts of great things. A little bit after that, there was a technique that I came up with at Harvard, which is this tape collection onto a solid tape, which actually makes it much easier. You're sure. collecting little thin sections. But you're collecting them not on a very thin substrate, you're collecting them directly on a tape, so now you can collect thousands and thousands uh, and look at them in a very robust way. And, and it's very automated. And it's automated. That I think is really coming into its own right now is this technique of focused ion beam scanning electron microscopy, and that's what I'm working on right now. It was invented in probably 2008 is the first really neural paper that came up using this technique. It goes back in semiconductors much much earlier. But the focused ion beam technique, you take a plastic embedded block of tissue and use an ion beam to slice off just the tiniest, tiniest layer. Five nanometers is no problem. Slice off five nanometers and then you look at the top surface and you can see that, that circuitry at five nanometer resolution. And so you get these beautiful 5 by 5 by 5 nanometer resolution volume images of the neural circuitry. And at that resolution, you can just see everything, every synapse, every wire. And what's really also nice about it is that it's robust. It is a, a kind of a solid state technique because the okay. ion beam doesn't ever get dull, it, like it's time and night. Um, tell us a little bit about the Brain Preservation Foundation and the Brain Preservation Prize. Just a brief overview. Yeah, so the Brain Preservation Foundation is a foundation that I started with John Smart uh, a few years ago. Essentially, the uh, Brain Preservation Foundation, its, its sole mission is to promote scientific research in brain preservation. Sure, okay. What people usually are thinking of is in terms of cryonics. Yeah. The Brain Preservation Foundation starts with that as its kind of the prototypical example. It's saying, you know, we really need to do more research in cryonics. More importantly, the scientific community needs to step up and do research into cryonics. But being a neuroscience, being, uh, you know, we're not living in the 1960s or 70s when cryonics was invented. We're living in 2012. And so we, we understand that there are alternatives to cryonics, that we can start to see what it, what it means to bring somebody back. And when I look at the future, I pretty much see, probably have a bias from being a neuroscientist, but uh, I pretty much see that the mind uploading is going to be the thing that is going to bring people back. Okay. Are you then, uh, right now, given your knowledge of connectomics and neuroscience, 
Are you of the opinion that your identity and memories are stored in the connectome or the pattern of synaptic connections within the brain? Uh, or do you think finer scale structures, synaptic weighting or, you know, the chemical state of the brain needs to be preserved as well in order to preserve identity or memories? Yeah, that's an absolutely excellent question. The thing that frustrates me the most is when people say, gee, we just don't know. We just don't know. And I, I shake my head when people say that because we know how the brain works. There are some details that we don't know, but I think we are far enough along that we can probably answer that question with a certainty of about at least 95%. And within that 95% confidence, the answer is, oh, yes, absolutely. It is the connections between neurons. Okay. Uh, it is right there in all the textbooks. It is the connections between the neurons. And, and more than just the connections between the neurons, if you look at the advanced cognitive science models of the mind, a lot of neuroscience does not take into account that other aspect of the field. But if you look at the advanced cognitive science models of the mind, what you see is something that is much more of a symbolic AI type of a system that we think is supporting our intelligence and our consciousness. And so it is true that neuroscience has a way to go to say how that exactly is supported on the neural circuits. But there is very good evidence that the way that it is supported is that uh, those symbols that are being that are being posited in all the cognitive science models of the mind and consciousness, those symbols are actually stored as stable attractor states within the neural networks of the brain. The, the stable attractor states are stored as connections between neurons, positive connections between neurons, and in such a way that it is extremely robust to damage or loss of information. And of course we know that that must be the case because people get, people get gunshot wounds to the head and they recover. Yeah, and they have Alzheimer's and most of their brain is destroyed, but some memories still persist. Exactly. Exactly. I, I think that a lot of people feel that the brain and the mind is so magical that it must be, be hyper-complex. It must go down to the individual molecules. I, I think those people need to read a little bit of uh, Daniel Dennett that likes to you know, kind of cut consciousness down to size. You know, he says, look, consciousness is a bag of tricks. That We may not know all those tricks, but they are just and a lot of what's stopping us from seeing what consciousness is is just this overinflation that we, okay. that we give. Sure. Uh, I know uh, just a little side question here. You just mentioned artificial intelligence. I was wondering if any of the digital brain simulation experiments, such as the Synapse Project at IBM or the Blue Brain Project, uh, do they have any relevance to what you're doing? Are the two camps kind of learning from each other as they go along? It seems to me like these are that these are parallel paths that have not yet met at all. So, for instance, the, the Blue Brain Project would, would obviously be overjoyed to get a good connectivity map of a cortical column. And that's going to be coming, but it isn't here yet. Okay. So you can see the, the traditional biological neuroscience and the digital simulations informing each other as the years go along. That's right. And I think eventually what will happen, and so you, you mentioned the, the DARPA Synapse Project, I think eventually what will happen is we will have these very complicated models of the brain, uh, like the Blue Brain Project, 
we will get circuits that will map out this, the, an actual circuit as a, a mouse retina. Yeah. And we will simulate the heck out of that and see, lo and behold, it gives exactly the same with, with a bunch of tweaks. Uh, it, it gives the same responses that we expect. But then we'll rip that down to its bare bones and we'll say, oh, this is really simple. Oh, this is simple. Oh, yeah, this works just the way they thought it did in the 1970s. And by the time we get to that level, the even the DARPA Synapse Project level of computation will probably be more than is actually necessary to simulate that particular function. Okay. And so I think that it is a necessary step to go through the kind of hyper-complex uh, realistic biological modeling that is in the Blue Brain Project and other projects like that. But I think eventually what we'll get to is reading off the neural connectivity and saying, ah, it has this stable attractor state, this stable attractor state, this stable attractor state. That's how the thing works. Okay. All right. Well, let's get back to the prize again when you just uh, touched upon earlier about the cold preservation versus the chemo preservation the kind of debate that the prize has started up. Uh, of course, the prize is agnostic in method. Uh, but what do you see as some of the strengths or weaknesses of the cold preservation versus chemo preservation? I mean, first, just double, uh, double check that everybody knows what the prize is. So, so the Brain Preservation Technology Prize is a prize for uh, $100,000 that is being offered by our foundation for the first group that can demonstrate in a scientifically rigorous manner that an entire large mammalian brain can be preserved so that all of these synaptic connections are intact. The prize has two phases. The large mammal phase is for the entire prize. There is a, uh, an initial phase that's going on right now that is asking people to demonstrate that this can be done on a mouse scale. So essentially this is a skeptical prize that is saying to the cryonics community and to any other community that might want to give an alternative to cryonics, like the chemical preservation community, if there was one, it is saying, let's do it correctly this time. Let's put out a very clear milestone that the scientists, that the scientific community can say, yeah, if it meets this, then we're not going to make fun of it. If it meets these requirements, then we're not going to, you know, say that people are scamming people. People are are being hoodwinked into uh, into this. That it doesn't have any chance of. There's there's got to be some level between uh, actually bringing somebody back to life and throwing somebody in a freezer. And and so the prize has tried to get what well, at least I and my conversations with the scientific community have seen as that middle ground as saying, look. If you can show that the synaptic connections between the neurons of the whole brain are preserved by electron microscopy, by, our, by rigorous statistical survey, then this is something that people should take seriously as a medical alternative. Uh, so now you're, you're asking about cryo versus chemo. Yeah, just briefly, you know, what kind of are the strengths and weaknesses of, of both methods? that you yeah. could yeah. elucidate. So, and, and that is exactly the way to look at it. First of all, there, there is, nobody has won this prize yet. No. And so there's no way to say that one is better than the other because neither of them work yet, right? So, and there is also no way to say that one is cheaper than the other because 
neither pair of them work, and we don't know how much money it's going to take to get either of them to work. So there are a lot of potential advantages and disadvantages to both. In no particular order, I'll start with cryo. Uh, cryopreservation has some real advantages. The real advantage of cryopreservation is that it, it does not involve chemical fixation of the brain. And so therefore, you can do experiments to show that some of the viability of the cells are obtained or preserved okay. across uh, a cryopreservation technique. And the 21st century medicine has publications showing that you can take a half millimeter thick rack of Campbell slice, lower it down to almost liquid nitrogen temperature with their special sauce in it, mm -hmm. uh, rewarm it, and then show that the cells are still viable. And also, at least in conference, they presented that you can do electrophysiology on it. That says a tremendous amount. Although it does not say that uh, all the connections were preserved. And it certainly doesn't say that you can do that over a whole brain. There may be large swashes of broken connections, and, and all of their results would still be the same. It is, it's, it's very important, though, that that can, can be demonstrated. The disadvantages of, uh, of cryopreservation are, in, again, in no particular order. Um, uh, there's the obvious disadvantage that it requires long-term maintenance at low temperature. So mm -hmm. ever, uh, accidentally warm, then the whole system goes away. There's some other ones that I think that are much more important when, when thinking about this stuff. So if you're trying to cryopreserve something versus chemical preservation, so chemical preservation can happen much more rapidly. The ability to get the system into a stable state that is not eating itself, that is not decaying. When you do that with a cryopreservation technique, the first thing you do is you start uh, you start with this living system and you're trying to pump in all of this cryoprotective agent. And that cryoprotective agent is itself damaging things. Mm -hmm. It is taking water out, it's dehydrating the whole system, everything shrinks, everything, uh, uh, protein probably denatured just from, from that. And there is this amount of time that uh, that the system is basically not in a healthy state before it actually gets to a temperature that it can be stable. And then once it gets to that temperature, then everything stops. But what amount of damage occurred to get to that temperature? On that chemical preservation, the first thing you do is shoot formaldehyde and glutaraldehyde straight into the vascular system. And within less than a minute, that glutaraldehyde gets to every cell of the brain and locks the proteins in place so that they can't do any more decay. And it may be creating a, uh, an incredible toxicity. It is, it is gumming up the works, but from a structural perspective, it's not doing anything. From a molecular perspective, it's doing a great deal. It's locking up all the stuff that would cause structural decay it's locking up all the stuff that is, is actually doing the correct function. But it locks it up very, very quickly. And so, so I think those are the real things that people should be looking at. Okay. Is it, is it more important to get a really fast structural freezing, freezing in the, in the sense of stopping, stopping of the molecular machinery, mm -hmm. or is it better to get as good but a slower uh, gentler from a molecular level, but maybe not gentler from a structural level, 
and get into a cryopreservation. Okay. And I guess the one thing that it boils down to then is a philosophy of identity, correct? Uh, that uh, some cryonics uh, practitioners are a little bit skeptical of, in that in our present day, we can visualize freezing and thawing and reviving. It, it's it's not with yeah. uh, outside of our current conceptual framework in our current technology and science, uh, whereas plastination would seem to invoke the old is copying myself or scanning my brain and, and uploading it still me or is it a destructive replication of me uh where do, what do you think about that and the, uh, yeah, the philosophy yeah. of identity so first of all uh, as a neuroscientist and a cognitive scientist i give absolutely absolutely no weight to the argument that a copy is not us Oh. Uh, it is essentially uh, heresy from a, uh, a cognitive science perspective to say, you know, I've got these two things that are completely identical, they work exactly the same, but one is, is me and one is not me. And that's so fundamental that, you know, if this one lives and this one dies, then that's all the difference in the world. Mm. So I have, to, I have to look at that from a perspective of somebody who, who knows that. Or, or at least maybe I'm wrong, but if I'm wrong, the rest of the, uh, of the cognitive science community is wrong. And we and our theories of the brain are just so terribly wrong that they're going to have to, they're going to have to burn a lot of textbooks. <laughs> uh, to, uh, okay. uh, because they're, they're just wrong at such a fundamental level. So I, I do see uh, some people within the current community uh, fall into the category of, uh, gee, I can't, I can't ever accept mind uploading as a, as a possibility because it's just a copy. There is a lot of other people within the Cryonics community that don't think that way. Uh, sure. Uh, so there's so. varied opinions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then I saw you at the Elcor 40 conference. Are you an Elcor member? I am an Alcor member for right now. Okay. Uh, I have, well, let me put it this way. So, and I haven't said this anywhere before, but I I am a member. I w I've been a member for over 10 years. I have put forward this prize, and if the prize shows, if the competition for the prize shows that products damages brain tissue, then I will withdraw my membership. It's very clear from that perspective. It, it is, a, to a certain extent, this prize is a skeptical look at, uh, at what I intend to do with my, with my own life. And I need to, you know, when I look at these electron micrographs, it's a little bit different than some of my colleagues that look at these electron micrographs and can dispassionately say, ah, that doesn't look so good. And I look at it and say, oh, my God, is that what my brain is doing? <laughs> You know, or, oh, wow, that's what my brain is going to look like. Okay. So, uh, it's, I am currently an Alcor member, but I am going to reevaluate that. Sure. Okay. Uh, you know, you come at it from a, a skeptical scientific standpoint, uh, in which you've explained very clearly here. Any speculation as to why the vast majority of the world rejects anything and everything to do with cryonics or even, you know, chemo preservation with the hopes of some sort of revival in the future? It's a great question. I think uh, there, there are so many different reasons. If, if I had to put a, a, a core reason on it, it's this belief that the brain is, or that the mind is natural. Oh. Um, right off the bat, there are an enormous number of 
of religious people. And most of those religious people, at least, uh, believe that the soul and the spirit are are just natural. So right off the bat, right off the bat, see what you're talking. About. <laughs> chronic, you don't need chronic. You're already going to heaven. What are you thinking? A mind uploading. You can't upload a soul. What are you thinking? Uh, within the neuroscience community, I have been really shocked at the level of magical belief. Uh, the kind of not not on the surface, but in in deep. When you when you start to talk to people about consciousness uh, and where it comes from, there's a there's a great reluctance to to really think of it from a me mechanistic perspective within the neuroscience community. I think the cognitive science community and the AI community uh, and the computer science community they get it, you know much more than everybody else. They they just they they see computers every day doing stuff, they understand how it works. Uh, the cognitive scientists have been thinking about the mind as a very special, very unique type of computer for decades, and they're just more accepting of the, of the idea that, that, hey, if we are machines, if we are computers, then that means that, first of all, very simply, we could be stopped in some way, like chronics, and restarted. That doesn't seem to be a Problem. No. Uh, it, from a computer's perspective, you know, you know, you know, we could be radically repaired. We could be uh, the the important part of our information could be copied and put on another substrate. All of these things are natural to the computer science and the cognitive science community, whereas they are really from a wet biology and even a wet neurobiology, they're not as comfortable with okay. the concept. I think that's the main disc. That gets kind of to the heart of it. Okay. Well, uh, besides the prize, is there anything else that you'd like to promote? Uh, a conference, a paper, or maybe a book coming up in the near future? I did just uh, publish a paper on, on neural network theory. Uh, it's actually my solution to the uh, to the famous neural binding problem. Uh, okay. So that uh, uh, that came out in uh, Frontiers in Computational Neuroscience just a few months ago. So it's, it's a very technical paper, but I think it's um, one of those that is another little brick in the cognitive science reaching toward the neuroscience. They're kind of like two roads that haven't met yet. Uh, the cognitive models are eventually going to reach the neuroscience models of the mind. And this is, I would like to think, one little step closer to getting those two to meet. Okay. Well, I'll have, uh, hopefully people will be able to check that out then. Uh, and I want to thank you so much for joining us uh, this evening on Longevity Now. Great. Thank you very much. Considering this interview, I hope you can appreciate how deeply transformative radical life extension is. Healing the aging human body is just the first small but very difficult step. Whether it is continuing past our biology or preserving ailing people through cryonics or chemopreservation, we open up a whole new philosophical arena. I will enjoy finding the answers and the questions with you in the future. Until next time, I'm Justin Lowe.